so many people are afraid to ask or afraid to talk about it in fear of pushing them to maybe try again. For me, it helps to talk about it. And since it's a part of my daily life, I don't want to avoid the topic forever. I am comfortable with what happened. So why not, you know, talk about it? there. My name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, most of us, including me, we are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and I hope better conversations with attempt survivors. Now we are talking about suicide, so this may not be a good fit for everyone. Please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Whether you've been listening regularly or this is your first time, I want to thank you. Thank you for hearing these stories of survival. These stories matter. If you like the podcast, if you're learning from the podcast, please keep doing what you're doing. Listen, let people know about it. If you're on a podcast platform like Apple and you have the option to rate or review it, that would help too. That allows people to find this podcast. I really appreciate it. And if you have a question or a comment, please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com. You can also follow us on social media at suicidenoted. Today, I am talking with Helena. Helena lives in Florida, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So is it Helena? Helena. Helena. All right. I want to write that down. I want to make sure I get that right. Are you in... I I don't want to be weird, but I see a a closet behind you. It looks like little shirts. No, um, this is my mom's bathroom. So I've like barricaded myself in my mom's bathroom. Um, Just a little bit more privacy. Um, I'm in a two-bedroom townhome with my mom and my brother, and I have the office of this townhome, so there's no window, no closet, and it's right next to the living room. Got so it. this ha- has at least two doors of, you know, a little bit more privacy. Um, I am in the process of house hunting, so living right. with family has been has been a challenge. Right. Yeah. So you're in the bathroom. Bathrooms are quiet, <laughs> safe spaces, right? Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for doing this. You know what, Helena? It's yeah. not easy to get people or find people who are open to talking about this stuff. It's not. I'm sure and there's a lot of people who have tried to end their lives. So I'm wondering, actually, this is a good segue. Do you like I'm going to reach out to this dude and see what's up? And I wonder why. So I was actually I deleted all of my social media um, about two and a half years ago. I had a Facebook and an Instagram and I kind of just found myself always on social media and always comparing myself to others. So I finally, you know, decided to delete it, but I still kind of felt drawn to um, looking on social media. It's been four years since my my attempt, and mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about it and find other people that have, you know, had similar experiences and suicide attempts. So I went on, Googled it and went on to Reddit and, you know, found some posts and found your comment and then just decided to reach out because... I think this is a very important topic and it's very important to talk about. Yeah. So question for you. Well, actually, they're all for you because you're the only person (laughs) I'm talking to. (laughs) Why do you think people are so hesitant to talk about this? I think it has a lot to do with shame and the fact that it is a topic that most people are not comfortable speaking about. Even now, I am two rooms away from my family because I didn't want my family to hear this conversation because I'm still kind of shame, you know, I feel shame around the experience still. So I think that's a very large part of it as well as being embarrassed Mm -hmm. about the situation as well. Yeah. Two rooms away is a great title for a book. (laughs) 
<laughs> that is a great title. Two That's rooms away. Title. Oh my goodness. I'm writing that down. I'm going to be writing some, I like to re reflect and process and journal. I, I hate to <laughs> gloat because I'm not good at most things. But one thing I think I'm pretty good at is titles. I like that title. I don't think that's a job. I don't think anyone cares. And by the way, Lena, you got to be careful. Sometimes it's a really what you're looking at. It might be a title. It could be a subtitle. Two rooms yeah, away. A chapter title. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Big choices to make as you. So you journal. Yes. Regularly? Regularly. It's like I kind of keep a notebook always on me, whether it's for work, um, balancing my checkbook in my journal, um, my thoughts and feelings, kind of using skills I've learned in therapy. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's my, my go-to. <laughs> How long does it take you to roll through a journal, like the physical book? I'd say a couple months. Uh, okay. And I have started keeping a collection of them um, because I would journal on and off. So I have about five journals from the past five years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you also write really small. Well, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. Two rooms away. All right. Share with me what you want about the, the suicide. If you want, maybe we could start with that day. Okay. So I had the plan in my head for about a week and I struggled with depression and anxiety since high school. Um, and then when I got to college at my university, I looked for treatment and I didn't really find anything that helped. For years, I tried different medications. And over those four years, I continued refilling these prescriptions even after going to a different prescription. And I kind of hoarded, hoarded pills for, for four years. Are you talking about things that like psychotropic meds yes. or other things that are maybe a little more, I don't know, dangerous? Um, benzodiazepines and antidepressants, antipsychotics. You're hoarding these meds. And yes. I, all right. So I do want to know why, but I want you to continue in the, however, the path that you were sharing the story. Uh, we could actually go back if you want to, because I had these two half attempts and then this was like the main attempt. Do you think it's important? I, I'm curious. I think it's important. Yeah. All right. So back. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> um, I started having suicidal thoughts in high school. I did not seek treatment until I got onto university, onto my campus at university. I lived on campus mm -hmm. and I went to therapy and I was just having a really tough time transitioning to living on campus, living away from animals. I Animals are a big part of my life. Mm. Um, I used to raise and show cows in a club called FFA. And so going from being with livestock every day to I... nothing in a little dorm on campus, it was really hard. And I had suicidal thoughts and they just kept getting worse and worse. And I was so afraid of being hospitalized because I've heard stories. Mm -hmm. And um, I had a plan to hang myself in my dorm room on campus my freshman year. I was just thinking about it a lot. It, my, my suicidal thoughts were constant. They were always in my mind. Um, so that was really hard. And basically, I did not go through with both of those attempts. However, I did get up onto – it was a closet shelf in my dorm. I had a friend – text me, a best friend text me, how are you that morning when I was planning on doing it. And I tried and I didn't go through with it. And I got down and I texted her and I just said, you know, this is how I'm feeling. I don't know what to do because I don't want to be hospitalized. That's just more problems. You know, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to have to pay hospital bills. It, it just seems like so many more problems than what it should be. And that's right. very difficult. It sucks. And you're right. Usually you're right about that. Yeah. She told me to tell someone and I told my therapist that day. And that's when I was Baker acted the first time. You were what? Baker acted. So that's a Florida term. Um, a Baker act is when you're involuntary, involuntarily hospitalized because you're at harm for yourself. Does that make sense? Um, yep. Yeah. It pisses me off, but it makes sense. Yeah, it pissed because me off. <laughs> I want to be careful. I don't know who's listening. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, I think the professional mental health community is well-intentioned. Most. 
right? Always exceptions. Some are good at it. Some aren't. What it, what it bothers me, and then I do want to get back to sort of like your story, not these like larger social political stuff. It's still important. I think oftentimes people are making those decisions out of issues related to, am I going to lose my license? Am I going to get sued? Uh, and I get it. And it sucks, but it's not necessarily the right thing for that person who's in pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really have a lot of places for, for Helena to go in that situation. We don't have them. So let's be safe and put her somewhere where it's r- almost impossible for her to kill herself. That's really what our goal is. No? Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it pisses me off. It was a very rough experience. You had these two almost attempts, right? Mm-hmm. And you're a, still a teenager. I was 18 at the time. Yes. 18 years old. Yeah. How long were you struggling? And if you shared this with me already, I apologize. Were you sort of really struggling before that, those almost attempts? Since high school, so like four years before that. But I was really struggling months, uh, a couple months before that. And it just kept getting worse. And you were saying one of the things that you could specifically point to is the, the different way of living that you had been with. Living one way, animals, and then you were put in the dorm room and... I wanted, you know, to live on campus. I wanted to have that experience. And I wish, you know, there was one thing that I could pinpoint to have that reason of why I wanted to um, kill myself. But, you know, I look back and there's no one reason. Yes. And we want it. We want to know why they do that. Why? Mm -hmm. What happened? Why? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, we don't get to know always exactly why. So how was that involuntary hospital stay? It was very difficult. Yeah. I was in these this inpatient facility. It was a facility for a lot of homeless and yeah. um, other, because I I didn't have a health insurance at the time, so that was played into a big part of where I yeah. was um, institutionalized, I guess. And I stayed in that hospital for three days um, because they have they have a seventy 72 hour hold. Yes. And then I kind of, honestly, I lied to get out Mm -hmm. because I just, I did not want to be there. It was not helping. Mm -hmm. It was making things worse. I was missing school. I was missing work. You were racking up some debt. I was racking up some debt. (laughs) That experience kind of led to the overdose because I did not want to go back. Yeah like that bad. And that's horrible to look back that at. That is so telling. <laughs> yeah. That your attempt was in part because you didn't want to go back to a place that is what's supposed to be. Why are they even there in the first place? Maybe my idea of why they're there isn't actually why they're there. Maybe it's to just throw a bunch of people somewhere where they're a little bit safer to themselves and others. I'd like to believe some institutions have other purposes. You tell me, what do you think? I think it, it definitely depends. You know, I went to a partial hospitalization program a couple years later. That was very helpful. Yeah. And I really think it depends on the, on the facility. So how long before you got out of the hospital? How long were you in the hospital before? You said you kind of lied to get out. Totally mm-hmm. get that. I was in the uh, hospital for three days. Not the hospital, the inpatient facility. Yeah. Yeah. With homeless, with other people, with very different challenges and conditions, I'm sure. Yes. (laughs) I've had two week-long stays, and the last one was a couple years ago, and in my room was a recovering, like recent, just recovering heroin addict who was delusional, and I was like, yeah, this is safe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? (laughs) After the hospital stay, what happens? After the hospital stay, I go back to campus. I'm still living on campus. I... I'm a very, um, I'm someone who dedicates everything to school. So I got back on track Mm. and I continued therapy and I was on different medication when I I was um, given medication while I was in the inpatient facility and continued that medication afterwards. However, it didn't make a difference. I was still having suicidal thoughts. I still felt depressed. Um, I was sleeping better because the new medications knocked me out at night. But overall, yeah. I wasn't, I felt the same. Of course, I didn't want to tell any, any of my health practitioners this information because I was so afraid of going back to that facility. So that was 2014. Mm-hmm. So for three years after that, I tried different medications. I think I've tried about eight or nine different combinations, different um, class of, 
classes of medications and tried um, different therapies, mainly cognitive, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, CBT, yep. CBT yep. with different therapists. However, I didn't really benefit from that kind of therapy. Mm. So I struggled, but I just kept going. It wasn't as bad as it was right before my right before I went to that inpatient facility, but I was still suicidal. I was still depressed. Um, I had good days, but overall I was just dreading every morning getting up. My my journals have just pages of just I don't want to live anymore. Like what verbatim? I wish that, verbatim, verbatim, yeah. I yeah. don't want to live anymore. Mm, pretty much. How do you live? How do you stay alive when for so long you're thinking and feeling that way? It's a weird question to ask, but I'm going to ask it. How do you not kill yourself? I look back and I still don't know how I did it for so long. I think I was just so afraid of failing. Here oh, I am. Wow. You know, it was because my, my journal is also like, I wish there was an easy way out. I wish there was an easy pill. So if you knew for sure, if I could guarantee you, Helena, it's not going to even hurt. Not only is it going to definitely work, I'll even add something else here. It's going to be painless. You would have been like, done. Check yes. me in. I'm in. I want that. Mm-hmm. How long of a period before that attempt would you have, or maybe after, but would you have said, yep, I want that? I'd say a couple months before that first attempt. Fucking brutal two months. It was. Yeah. It was. Nowhere to go. Fucking hell. Well, I, I admire you for sticking it out. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and I did well in school. I was very involved. I worked a lot. So that kept me going, staying yeah. busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I there were points in that three years um, where I felt so defeated, but there wouldn't be enough energy in me to attempt or do something. You know, I had plans. I mean, I thought of plans, but there was never a point in time where I was like, okay, let me just, let me just go do it right now. It was always just constantly thinking about it and having that energy wasted on thinking and crying and wishing and wanting. And it was, it was hard. <laughs> and, but you're, you're doing okay at school though. Isn't yeah. That fascinating to me. So you're able somehow to do that. I'm assuming you had compromised or perhaps even no like sort of relationships, friendships, whatever. Is that something you were able to cultivate or is no energy? No energy. I really, all I did was work in school. I mean, I had a couple friends um, from high school, but they were, they didn't go to the same college as me. They were still back home, which was only an hour away, but I did not have a car. So I was kind of stuck. I would walk around campus and um, there were squirrels and ducks on my campus. So I would feed them (laughs) just to have that little bit of animal interaction. You know, that's what I liked. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also, this was a big part, is I worked for housing and I saw the stigma around emotional support animal applications Mm. from administration because they were always like, these people don't need this. They're just wanting an animal on campus. You know, these are lies. And that was really hard because I knew how much I needed an animal with me but I did not want to even look into that option because I worked with housing, because I worked with the administration that processes those applications in fear of being judged or stigmatized. Mm-hmm. That was rough too. We're allowed to say the school if you want to. Okay. Uh, I think it's USF. Yes. <laughs> you know how I know that? How? Because I'm wearing a USF shirt? You're wearing a shirt. <laughs> Let's see. I, I was trained for a long time to do this kind of work, and I pick up on these things like that big, massive bull <laughs> on your shirt. Um, I went to the UF. Okay. Okay. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah. Are you saying you're also from, you said around the area, Central mm-hmm. Florida, West Florida? Yeah, uh, Wesley Chapel. It's called a little city, uh, north, like 20 minutes north of Tampa. Um, and that's where I raised and showed cows in Wesley Chapel, Florida. <laughs> nice. And I, I still work at USF, so I still love the – I don't work in housing anymore, but I still work at the university because I do absolutely love it. Yeah? Um, yeah. I do. Nice. Cool, 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 cool. So <laughs> you're still on campus. You're struggling. Still on is this, campus. Is this our freshman year? Freshman year? 
this we could go we could fast forward because this is about the same for two years two more years and wow i'm still living on campus i'm not working for housing anymore i'm in a different room i'm in an apartment and i have my own room and i was very isolated at the time i didn't go out much i love live music and i purchase concert tickets but then they would come up and I would just not have the energy to go and then I would cry because I don't have the energy to go and I'm missing it but I don't want to go because I'm feeling depressed and these were kind of signs that I wasn't doing very well when I was canceling plans and doing not doing things that I absolutely loved. My pills were always kind of the pills that I kept and hoarded were always kind of like I don't want to say a safety net but they were always in the back of my mind. I'm like they're there all I have to do is just swallow them. But I, again, I was just so afraid of waking up, so afraid of the pain. Mm. And so I researched a lot and just kind of thought about it for, for like a few weeks. And then I decided a couple of days before that I would do it. And I got all of my medications and crushed them up with pill cutters and mixed them with alcohol and took them. Um, when was this? This was in November of 2016. This is on campus. 20 years old? I, yep. Mm -hmm. 20. About 20, I think, yeah. You took all the pills? I took all of them, yes. So that sounds from what you're saying because you were hoarding. There was a lot. There was a lot. Hmm. And yeah. there were different pills. They were different pills. Different, yeah. What was the difference of that day and the day before? Um, it, I planned it like on a weekend. So it would be, you know, not during the work week because I don't know. I don't know what was different. I just knew something was different. I was ready. I thought about it for so long and I was just like, you know what? I'm going to do it because I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. And you did it. And I did it. And I locked my door. So I was in my own room and I fell unconscious. Well, I kind of remember like 10 minutes before I fell unconscious as I was still taking the pills. And I remember feeling nauseous and grabbing a trash bag. But then after that, I don't remember anything. Mm -hmm. But what happened was I was sitting on the floor and I was throwing up and fell unconscious. And I was um, sitting there in the same position in my own vomit for three days because I didn't tell anyone. My door was locked. I, I didn't want to live. You know, I tried to do everything possible to make sure that I, quote unquote, succeeded. You didn't want to live. You weren't fucking around. No, I mean, I, that's I, really I, what I hear, right? It's like yeah. you, wasn't, you did not want to live. I did not. So you take the pills. You lock the door. You make it really hard for people to find you. But three days later, something what happens? My, um, of course, you know, I had my mom calling me and I wasn't answering. And then I think on the second day, she called the dean of students and asked for a wellness check. And the dean of students at the time called my cell phone as a wellness check. And of course, I didn't answer. And then the next day, finally, I think housing staff um, arrived to my room along with one of my best friends at the time. So I did have a Tumblr, uh, a social media, a Tumblr page at the time, but it was only for like me and a couple friends. And I just went on it kind of just a journal, but no one had access to this, this page, but I did schedule a post for like a two days afterwards, just saying like, I'm sorry, just, just something for someone to see for afterwards. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. And um, she saw that post. And of course, she kind of knew. Hmm. Um, and she decided to come to campus. And it was a Wednesday night. And this was the same time the uh, university staff was coming to my room. And I'm still unconscious in my room. And they come into my apartment. I have a roommate at the time. And she's like, no, she's not here. You know, when she locks her door, that, that means she's not here. They came in and they asked my roommate, you know, if she knows where I am. And then they unlock the door and my roommate goes, see, she's not here when the door opens and I'm on the ground, passed out, 
in my own vomit. When your mom called, didn't reach you, and then people reached out to her, um, do you think she had any idea? I think my mom had an idea because when I was first first almost tried and when I was um, went to an inpatient facility, I had to call her and, and tell her that I wanted to kill myself and now I'm in the hospital. So, of course, that was something that I worried about is my mom. And so I, I think she did have an idea. And then I don't know when they called her, but she got to the hospital kind of the same time that I was transported there. Hmm. And I don't remember anything the first two days of the hospital because I was in the ICU. I had a blood clot in my left leg and in my left arm. And that turned into a pulmonary embolism, which is the blood clot uh, traveled to my lung. Luckily, you know, I got all the, the surgery that I needed, the treatment in the emergency room. And I spent two full weeks at the hospital, uh, including Thanksgiving at the hospital. Mm, there's irony there. So, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. That hospital stay sounds more like let's stabilize her. Short-term crisis. Yep, the thing is, though, and I'm sure you'll share with me, I want to hear it. Okay, you're still alive. But your problems and your feelings and all the other stuff don't magically go away. No. And a lot, I think a lot of people think that when, you know, you wake up from a suicide attempt, you're, you're very happy. You're so, you know, thankful to be alive. I was devastated. Yeah. I did not want to be there. I was on another Baker Act, so they were planning for me to go to another inpatient facility after mm -hmm. I was stabilized in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And I talked to a psychiatrist and I again lied. Mm -hmm. And they let me, they rescinded the Baker Act and let me go home. And this time I moved off a of campus, but I also want to say I was kind of kicked off a of campus because of my own safety. Really? Yes. What do you so, mean? Someone came to you and said something? Since I, I had a relationship with the housing staff, um, I knew that no student could break their contract without either they're, you know, drafted for the military or something very, very serious, or else they had to pay a lot of money. But when I went to the housing staff, they're like, don't worry about it. You know, you need the care that you need at home. We could just let you go for free. And I, and at the time it was, you know, the best option is I kind of knew that I had to move back home because mm -hmm. of just what kind of mental state I was in as well as physical, because mm -hmm. I ended up causing a lot of nerve damage to my left hand mm. because I was in such a, I was in a stagnant position for so long. It compressed nerves as well as like mm. the bile eating away at my skin caused like some nerve damage. So I could not move my left hand or my left fingers at all afterwards. Can you today? Um, a little bit. It's not the best, the, the hand is very weak, but over time I'm, I'm slowly gaining, um, you know, more motor and sensory and dexterity. Hey, to be honest, it's a constant reminder. There's nothing like having your left hand immobile to remind you. Yep. Kind of going off topic, but I now work with breast cancer survivors who have chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy, which is when the chemotherapy toxins kind of kill your nerves and your feet and your hands. And in our clinical trial, we are looking at interventions for this kind of neuropathy. And our participants will come in and talk about it. And I want to relate to them so bad. I want to say, I understand, I feel it. I have the same thing in my hand, but I, I don't think I can without them asking what, what is it from? What, what happened? You know, right. just out of genuine curiosity. And I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Why can't you share with them what happened? I think I'm afraid of, of judgment. I think I'm also afraid of um, just what people will think. You can get fired. You, you never know. Maybe yeah. I, I don't know. That's... <laughs> and then maybe, you know, it'll affect our, our data. Maybe I tell a participant and then they take these psychological assessments afterwards and they're really sad from hearing my story. And then you see, like, <laughs> I suppose. yeah, no, 
We've got to get rid of Helena because we don't want really honest people at this organization who are really true and gone through some stuff. And no, we don't want that. In previous interviews after my attempt, I would bring it up in a job interview. I would say, I was in a car accident recently and I have some nerve damage. Will my limited dexterity inhibit my abilities to perform these job responsibilities? Just to, I was always scared of it, like being a huge thing in a job, but most people say they don't notice it because of how well I've adapted and I kind of overcompensate with my right hand, which has caused my left hand to be even more weak. But it, it is something that I'm constantly aware of. Yeah. What started to, look, you're, you're alive. I'm talking to someone who's alive. So something's either changed for the better or at least not gotten worse. You probably wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what those things have been that at least moved the needle in a slightly better direction. I, when I moved back home, it was during the holidays. You know, this is December. Um, I was, there was no school at the time. I was not working. I quit my jobs because of, I just needed time to recover. I was very depressed for a month after just waking up, wishing baffled by how, how am I here? Why am I here? And not being able to move my arm. It was very swollen and heavy and no one really knew what kind of recovery that I would face with the hand. So a couple weeks later, I kind of pushed myself to apply for Medicaid mm-hmm. and I got Medicaid. And then I kind of pushed myself to apply for a partial hospitalization program that was only three miles from my house. Wow. Cool. So I decided like, you know, I, I, I want to change. I want to, you know, if I'm going to be here, I might as well continue trying different treatments. Um, I, continued seeing my psychiatrist and got on different medications. Mm -hmm. And so I went through the partial hospitalization program and that was kind of like my reset. It was every day, every weekday, like nine to five. And it really helped me kind of get back to a mindset where I could believe that things could be different. Because for a long, long time, I was like, you know, this is never going to change. I'm always going to feel like this. Mm -hmm. So the partial hospitalization program stabilized me. (laughs) And then I went to a therapy called DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy. And that was the most beneficial therapy I've ever been through because of just how well it helped my symptoms of impulsivity and just wanting and to just not be here. And I don't, you know, every therapy, every medication is different, but I, I do really think the medication that I'm on now has completely helped me turn, you know, my life around because I don't have suicidal thoughts anymore. I don't want to kill myself anymore, which is unbelievable to hear me say, to be honest. Yeah. You found two meds that helped. Yes. And that therapy during that time was very helpful. The DBT. DBT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And do you still do the or is that sort of a set period of time and now it's kind of done? I did it for a year and it was very helpful. And then I, you know, graduated kind of <laughs> yeah. from the program. And I was actually thinking about recently going back and going through that that whole therapy again because you could, you know, gain different sure. things from going going into it with different perspectives. Mm-hmm. However, the individual at the this facility said that I'm not I don't have enough uh, severe enough symptoms to go back into that therapy, which I understand because that was you know a therapy for when I was in such a low point. Yeah. So I got like a DBT workbook that I'll I'll be doing on my own because I still I still have struggle I still you know I deal with an eating disorder and just a lot of stress. But yes, DBT and the medication, and then I went back to school mm-hmm. and things were, are still going well. Did you finish? I did. I graduated in 2018 and right. I work full time in a study coordinator position. Go Bulls. Go Bulls. I'm not a fact. <laughs> school spirit's not, not exactly my thing. <laughs> but still, and you finished. Did you say you got a degree in psychology? Yes, I got my bachelor's in psychology. 
Awesome. Mm-hmm. And now you're working with some clinical trials? Yes. Yep. I feel like half the jobs in the world now are clinical <laughs> trial based. I'm also at the University of North Carolina. Like that's the area I live. Mm-hmm. And there's Duke is here and there's just so much of that. So like every other person I meet, they're like, I'm in clinical trials. And I, I'm like, everybody's doing this. There are so many research opportunities at, re- at universities that yeah. that have these like research opportunities. I'm very grateful for the undergraduate experiences that I got as a, um, a research assistant or a volunteer for those kind of experiences. Um, Cause that helped me get to the position that I'm not, I am at now. Are you living with your folks or are you solo or what's that like now? I'm living with my mom and my brother. It was very hard to move back home, but it was what helped me in the end kind of get back on, on track. I am in the process of house hunting. So I am ready. Like buying? Yes. What? (laughs) Yeah. So I'm very excited about that. Trying to save as much as I can, which, you know, living with family helps as much as I, as they get on my nerves. It helps me save money. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, you're going to buy a house alone? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or I may have a roommate. I may have the friend that I texted the very first time will be my roommate. All and right, right wow. now, also, the family thing is we have five animals. So living with three cats and two dogs is... What kind of dogs are they? A Pomeranian and a French bulldog. Little guys. Yeah, little guys. Mm-hmm. I like big dogs because of my, my experiences yeah, with, with cows. I love big dogs. I, I would love a pet too. cow. <laughs> who, who doesn't really want a pet cow when they really get real with themselves? Right. Is the French bulldog the one that makes those weird sounds? Mm-hmm. You're like, what are you doing? <laughs> what do you and just keep making yeah. that sound? Mm-hmm. Some sort of evolutionary thing going on there that I'm not sure worked. Yeah, they're little snouts. <laughs> so you're still here, man. I'm still and here. You're also kicking it. You are house hunting, working, and w- willing to share and talk about your stuff. Is uh, that's a win? Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that I'm very comfortable sharing because of it's hard to to say I caused my own disability, but in a sense, I caused my own disability, my own limitations with the with my nerve damage. Crap, I forgot where I was going with this. It's okay. That's the story of my life. We're on the same page now. <laughs> we got to just go all over the place. It makes editing a nightmare, but I'll get it done. I'm so sorry. Let me ask you a few questions that are can be can be answered sort of long form, but I want to see if we could do it shorter form. In okay. Life. Okay. Here's you ready. Yes. How many people know about your attempt? I would say about 10, 10 people, maybe more, because I am comfortable sharing it with dating and you know wondering when they're gonna find out about my scars or my you know, my nerve damage. I don't have any nails on my left hand because I Ooh. bit them off because I couldn't feel anything because I had that nerve damage. You know, I'm always, I always fear, fear that it's so noticeable that my deformed hand is distracting. So I'll, I'll bring it up, you know, on first dates because yep. that's just what I do <laughs> because it's a part of me. It's yeah. just, it's something I'm comfortable talking about and I, you know, more people are going to know now since I'm on this podcast and yeah, it, yeah. It, some people, <laughs> no, I don't know. I, you know, you know what, it's kind of hard to get people's attention. Yeah. There's literally probably millions of podcasts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you some people know. are listening and truly it's just cool. If a couple of people hear it and uh, 62 countries, by the way, Helena. Wow. No joke. Wow. We're not playing. <laughs> Um, and I, and I, but I don't know who's listening and I don't know if they are, um, outside of the people who do reach out Mm -hmm. survivors, contemplators, supporters, but that's a good segue to my next question. Somebody out there is like Helena was, uh, in college and she's, or he is contemplating hard. Now I realize you don't know them. So it's a tricky question. Do you have any words for them? I'd say to keep going and to keep trying. I think what discouraged me the most was not finding something that helped me earlier. But again, it's a trial and error process with medications and treatments. And 
I would say also to reach out for help. I was so scared of reaching out because of my first inpatient facility experience. And that also kind of prevented me from reaching out for help. It kept me from reaching out for help. And so I think that's very important, even though it's something that's very hard to do, but to just reach out to one person, you know, and let them know what's going on. Yeah. And what about to the others who maybe mean well? I think a lot of people do mean well and they're just not getting it. And so like, is there anything you would say to them so that they have a better sense of like how they can maybe be supportive? I think watching what you say, my mom, when we've gotten on each other's nerves, will just be like, Lena, go take your meds. And that's like the worst thing that you could tell someone, you know, that is taking medications because they're taking medications to try to feel better, not to really, you know, I don't know what my mom thought at the time, but at the time it was a very hurtful yeah. comment, you know, mm-hmm. my brother and I aren't very close. So we went to the same school. We lived on campus together, but in different you know, buildings. And I only saw him twice on campus during those three years. Mm. And he came to the hospital after my overdose and told me that, you know, he just wants me to get better and he wants to see me happy. And that was crazy to hear because we we didn't talk at all. Mm. So I think also hearing, you know, just saying what that you care about them, that you care about that person and um, want to be there for them is very important. And then do that. And then do that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Surprise. Yeah. <laughs> you actually give a shit and then show up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always want to get a sense of how people in your life responded when they found out. I've had so many nurses tell me, oh, God kept you here for a pur- purpose. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a religious person. So at the time, it did not help me. And hearing it so many times, like, oh, you're here for a reason. Oh, y- you survived. Like, mm-hmm. it just at the time, it was like, well, yeah, I know I survived. I don't want to be here. So why did it was something I did not want to hear at the time. They were, you know, trying to mean well. Presumably, right? Presumably, yeah. Presumably. <laughs> They're already nurses. So let's hope that they already have that sort of like, hey, I want to help people out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think just being um, cognizant of someone's religious preferences or you never know, you know, you, why, why kind of, when I was first institutionalized and they van driver picked me up from the university to drive me to the inpatient facility, I was crying. I didn't know what was going on. And he asked me if I believed in God and I said, no. And he's like, well, that's the problem. Oh my God. No, no, that's not what you say to someone who wants to kill themselves. You know who else would probably never say those words? What? Who? God. Yeah. I'm not a believer. I'm not anti anything. You want to believe that's cool. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure your God would never say that. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing it? Just my thoughts, Helena, Lena. Just picked up on that. That that some people call you Lena. My mom, just my mom. Okay, now it got awkward. Okay, now it's awkward. No, you're fine. That's okay. okay. So that didn't help. No. Probably meant well. This is the rub for me. It's really interesting. Is I look the people who are just assholes are really just like you're being an, like that. I don't care. Like I don't want to talk to you. I mean, I, I someone should talk to you. It's just not me. I'm always <laughs> so fascinated in truth about the people who probably do mean well, but man, you have no idea how to do it. You mean well, so you say that thing or this thing, but you're, uh-uh, mm-hmm. helping. Yeah. Be cognizant of your beliefs and your faith, and it may not land well with others who have different ways of, different beliefs, yeah? Yeah, I think being open and, you know, just being aware of that, of what you're saying and how it comes across to others that have different beliefs is important. There's a difference between saying, oh, that's the problem is you don't believe in God rather than, oh, someone is looking out for you. Because that could be completely different. And it came across differently as, you know, what that that driver said to me. What are the biggest myths associated with it? When you hear this stuff, you're like, nah, just shaking your head like, nah, nope. A lot of the other individuals that were on your podcast that I've listened to kind of also talk similarly about people 
avoiding this topic, avoiding the topic of suicide and talking about different attempts and different experiences that others have had. For me, I'm comfortable talking about it and I like questions and I like being able to answer them openly. Um, But so many people are afraid to ask or afraid to talk about it in fear of pushing them to maybe try again. But for me, it, it helps to talk about it. Yeah. And since it's a part of my daily life, I don't want to avoid the topic for, you know, forever. Since it's always going to be a part of my life, I kind of have to, you know, I've, I've accepted it. I am comfortable with what happened. So why not, you know, talk about it? Talk about it. Mm-hmm. I get why people say those things or are hesitant. Because like we were just saying earlier, a lot of people say stupid shit. Yeah. And that's, you know, who, who wants to talk to somebody? I, I say stupid shit, but I think my beliefs or my ideas around this stuff are a little bit more open. I think they are. But I certainly don't want to talk to people who say stupid shit. Yeah, no. <laughs> Mental or invalidating. It's like, I don't know. And you do find that a lot, I imagine, right? I mean, it's not, you don't have to look very hard to find a lot of people who say things that you're like, nah, I don't really think I want to talk to you much about this stuff. Yeah, I've had someone call me selfish for what I did. I've also had a therapist kind of try, I, I know it's, it doesn't, they don't mean to guilt trip, but whenever someone is like, well, what about your mom? Yep. What about, you know, who you're leaving? At that point in time, I don't care about anyone else but myself. That was the hardest thing to get over to is just, you know, having that, it feels like a guilt trip and it, it made me very angry. Mm. You're just struggling to stay alive. Yeah. Don't you, th- it would make sense to me when you're struggling so hard to stay alive, it is all about you. Yep. Because mm-hmm. you're just, tr- that's, you're, something's kicking in, like, don't die. Right. I think, I don't know. Just makes sense to me that like, no, I probably don't have a massive amount of energy for a lot of other people. Yeah. You know, at the time, all of my energy was consumed by just thinking about suicide and wanting to commit suicide. So the energy that I had left over was just for work and school. And then I would go to bed. You know, it was hard to talk to other people. And that was another thing is I didn't have much support in my life. Um, I isolated and I avoided different things. And that put me into a different kind of perspective as well as being alone, you know, thinking I was alone in this experience and in these thoughts. And it's really nice to know that you're not alone. Game changer. Game changer. So what are the chances, uh, given you're, you're looking for a house, you got a job, dating some from what you shared, what's the likelihood that one day in the future you might try again? I don't think there's a big chance that I'll try again. Um, it hasn't been on my mind. Like I will have bad days where I'm like, oh, I just wish this wasn't you know, what I was facing right now, but it's never a thought to, okay, what if I just leave? What if I, you know, am not here anymore? So I don't think there's a, I don't think I will try again. I mean, I'm not in the mindset to try again. I don't have that motivation or that, that desire. Um, I'm very thankful for my medications, but one day maybe I need to get off those medications for some reason. And I have those thoughts again. Um, It's something that I'm really afraid of doing in the future. If I do need to get off these medications but I may face those thoughts again. And at that time I kind of will identify what is helping me in that moment and how to reach out for help. I mean, I have resources now that I didn't have in the past um, support and friends and family and things like that. You never know. The future is uncertain, uncertainty. (laughs) No guarantees. Mm -hmm. Other than your animals and journaling, is there anything else that brings you that brings you uh, joy? Going to theme parks, which I haven't been nice. to since uh, the pandemic like, started. Like Disney World? Universal. I love Universal. I'm so lost on all that. Is it not the same? <laughs> no. So Disney has um, a couple of theme parks, a couple of parks, and then there's Universal Orlando and Islands of Adventure. So Islands of Adventure and Universal Studios are the two parks in Universal. And so they have more more roller coasters, more big kid rides. Like 
there's too many little kids. I don't like little kids. I don't want to have kids at Disney. So well, there's millions of kids everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Eating cat, like eating crappy food and screaming and wearing ears. It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. So yeah, I really, I really miss roller coasters, and I that was kind of my escape and my stress reliever. Is my family, family and I would always take trips to Universal, um, and those were kind of like the breaks I had from life, from those suicidal thoughts. Because when I was at the theme park, you know, I'm not thinking about wanting to kill myself. Is I'm thinking about what ride I'm going to next. Is there anything else? I know there's always more stuff, but you know. Other stuff I may not have asked about, you wanted to share things that are on your mind. So this was after my overdose. This was in, this was a year ago, almost a year ago, two years after my overdose. So I wrote in it, Helena, you deserved better. You deserved to be treated with kindness and compassion. Instead, I invalidated your feelings and experiences. We never processed or reflected, which I now value immensely. I resisted your urge to reach out for assistance and alternatively let the pressure continue to build. I valued my perceived capabilities more than my internal conflicts. And for that, I am sorry. Rather than allowing myself to truly feel, I shielded you from negative emotions. I wish I knew how to care for you then, but I ignored you for so long. You are worth so much more than how I treated you. I'm sincerely sorry for the negative impact I caused to your physical and mental health. You are allowed to feel negative emotions. What matters is how you react to these feelings. You never learned how to cope through these feelings, and it only got worse over time. My negative perceptions kept you from so many opportunities. I stunted your growth under the pretense that I was protecting you. I'm sorry I did not truly love and value you until now. And so that was kind of a letter to myself afterwards. And you still read it. I still read it. Mm-hmm. And that was a year ago. Yeah. About a year ago? Mm. Man, it's hard. That's yeah, good stuff. Good stuff and honest stuff. Yeah, it's, I've definitely, I've grown a lot since. Mm. We just beat the crap out of ourselves, don't we? We do. We, we really do. The shit out of ourselves. It was just constant negativity about myself in the past. <laughs> I appreciate you this talk and you reached out to me and I love the fact that you were so honest and yeah, like, you know, I always tell people, I don't know who hears it, but I have to believe that some people who hear it, you know, there's something or parts of it where they're like feeling a little connection or a little less alone or mm-hmm. who knows? Who knows? Yeah. You never know who you're going to reach and what perspectives you could bring to someone. Yeah. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my yeah. story with Thank you, Helene. I really appreciate you sharing your story. So uh, stay, stay well. And uh, I hope we can talk soon. Thank you. I hope so, too. All right. Have a great day. You, too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening. And special thanks to Helena down in Florida. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I would love to talk. Hello at SuicideNoted.com. You can follow us on social media at SuicideNoted. We release new episodes every Monday morning. So until we connect again, stay strong, do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.